Please rise for the reading of God's Word from Titus, the second chapter. Hear now God's Word. But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine, that the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, in patience. The older women likewise, that they may be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works, in doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. Exhort bondservants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. Thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said. Amen. Amen. I sometimes think it's a scary thing to say amen to the word of God uh, because, of course, we're saying so be it. And that is, of course, what we should say when we come to the word of God. Uh, Whatever your word says, so be it. So be it in me. And that's what I ask you this morning as you sit there and pray to the Lord, as you listen to the sermon, that you will pray, Lord, open my eyes, open my ears, open my heart. Uh, Don't let me be listening for everybody else. Let me listen for me. Work in me, for me. Conform me, change me, grow me, mature me. So Paul, you remember, starts, he starts this section calling on Titus to speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. But what follows is not what we might expect. We might have expected Paul to now focus on, since he talked about sound doctrine, to focus on theology proper, and perhaps uh, with some instruction on propitiation or justification by faith uh, or the atonement or something like that. But the kind of doctrine, and, and the word doctrine just means teaching, the kind of teaching Paul wants Titus to focus on is what we might call practical theology. You'll recall that in the very first verse of the epistle, Paul referred to the truth which accords with or lines up with or is consistent with or harmonious with what? Godliness. In other words, our life needs to match our doctrine. They must be in harmony with each other, and anything short of transforming truth is not truth at all, but rather a perversion of the truth. It falls short. 
So at one point, Jesus says to the Sadducees, you do great error not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. Now, they could quote chapter and verse. What were they missing? The power of God. This was the key problem with many of the Pharisees. So when the Bible tells us, for example, in Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, and then you proceed to let foul or hateful words come out of your mouth, then you have denied the truth, and you have, in that moment, denied the faith. It is not enough to believe unclean words are prohibited by God. That's true. But it also means they must not ever come out of your mouth since you're a follower of Jesus and because that would be a contradiction and a denial of the truth. In other words, what does the doctrine of the gospel look like in the lives of God's people? That's where Paul is going now. And we need to remember that virtue signaling manifests the sins of self-righteousness and pride. So uh, we can say, look at me, look how good I am, look how godly I am because I remember when I was in high school and a very zealous Christian, uh, our little group of teenagers who were on fire for the Lord all had New American Standard translations of the Bible and we had them in uh, Naugahyde zipper Bible cases. So they're like the size of a suitcase. And we all marched in and we sat on the first and second rows of the church. And in retrospect, I look back and I say, that was just one big parade of virtue signaling. Look at us. We've got the right translation. We have markers and highlighters and pens and a zipper case for our Bibles. And here we all sit together to show the rest of you what you should be doing, like us. We can do that with anything. But there are real Christian virtues that we must possess and cultivate. And so if you're more, if you're going to be more than a show Christian, which is not like being a show dog, then something real and powerful has happened to you and is continuing to happen to you. The Apostle Peter describes this kind of powerful transformation of real Christians this way from 2 Peter 1, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. So if you're a Christian, if you've received what we've received, this precious faith, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to all of us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust, but also for this very reason... Giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. To virtue, knowledge. To knowledge, self-control. To self-control, perseverance. To perseverance, godliness. To godliness, brotherly kindness. To brotherly kindness, love. And if these things are yours and abound, 
You will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, for he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. So I want to jump up and down on Peter's phrase, giving all diligence, add to your faith, virtue. Because that's what Paul is also talking about in Titus 2. And if this isn't actively happening in a demonstrative way in you so that everyone else can see it, then I fear that you may be in deep spiritual trouble. You see, there's a significant difference between the Pharisee who performs all their works to be seen by men. That's virtue signaling. Versus the command of Jesus that you are to let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. And instead of glorifying you, glorify your Father who is in heaven. So being a Christian isn't simply a private matter. This is not just you and Jesus. This is way bigger than you and me. And to be part of this bigger thing, which is the body of Christ, the church, starts with you and me denying ourselves, discovering who you are in Christ, and living like both of those things are true. And in this second chapter of Titus, Paul addresses various groups within the church. That is, older and younger men, older and younger women. In other words, it speaks to all of us in very particular ways. He's going to set before each of these groups very specific virtues that he wants to see them exhibit in their lives. William Hendrickson comments on this. He said, as soon as the question is asked... What is the source of these virtues? How are they motivated? According to what standard is their exhibition to be judged? And for what purpose are they to be used? The great contrast immediately appears. Accordingly, the qualities that are mentioned in the verses which follow are specifically Christian virtues in this sense, namely, that they presuppose the the dynamic of God's grace working in the heart and are motivated by the example of Christ and are measured by God's holy law and have God's glory as their goal. Older men, listen up. Verse 2, that the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, in patience. So, just, I'll draw a somewhat arbitrary line. If you're over 40, then you're an older man. Paul is describing what a mature Christian man looks like. And you don't get to be a mature Christian man just by turning 40. And, if, and we should remember that immaturity is everyone's problem. We're born that way, and that's what we're trying to get over. Immaturity is selfishness. So this maturity, according to this text, starts with sobriety and temperance, which go together. Now this certainly would include the exercise of restraint in your Christian liberties. 
So you should always be on the short side of intoxication and any other form of self-indulgence. But this sobriety and temperance also has reference to a seriousness about life and an avoidance of extremes. It is time, for example, if you're an older man, to stop joking around about everything and display some gravitas. Now, the Bible is not opposed to good humor and a laugh and a joke, but when it's all the time, when everything, we have to say something cute, something funny to try to get a laugh out of somebody. This is young man's stuff. And they need to, we're going to talk about that in a minute. But if you're an older man, you need to think about, do I do that? How am I using my mouth? Am I coming across as a mature, godly, mature, uh, serious Christian? And so you should, you sh- um, uh, a mature man guards his mouth and shows reverence and respect to others. And that means all others. That means children, teenagers, adults, men, women, strangers. Crude talk and coarse jesting along with Criticism and complaining need to be replaced with godly godly dignity. The sober-minded man knows how to employ both caution and courage. There is a time to speak up, speak out boldly, and there is a time to close your mouth and listen, pray, think. He knows when to shut up and and when to speak up. And those who are sound in faith are not tossed to and fro after every wind of doctrine, every faddish thing that comes along. Mature men take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, especially all the crazy ideas found on the Internet, which is just a bigger version of what was going on in Athens in the first century when Paul says for all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but to tell of something new. They want to be titillated. Oh, I've heard that before. That's, that's one of my kind of pet peeves in preaching. You can preach from the Word of God, and, and you get something like, yeah, um, I've heard that before. Like, it's not my job. It's not, the, it's not the preacher's job to give you something new every week. Why don't you start doing the old things? And I'll start talking about something new. Okay? There are new things. I'm not opposed to finding new things, but that's not the goal. The goal is for us to learn the fundamental things and to do them over and over. So in order to do that, you're going to have to hear about them over and over, and that's why the Bible repeats them over and over. And so, with all your manly authority and wisdom, older men, these virtues are exercised and demonstrated by your maturity in faith which are seen primarily, according to this text, in the love and patience that you have toward others. Immature men are always worked up about something. Regarding your wives and children, 1 Peter 3, 7, Husbands, likewise dwell with your wives with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, 
and as being heirs through the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. 1 John 2.14, I have written to you, fathers, because you have known him, that is Jesus, who is from the beginning. That's in your mind. That's your, you know him. You live because you know him. 1 Timothy 2.8, I desire, therefore, that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. These are godly men. I found this section of scripture to be personally convicting. And as I have worked through this during this past week, I have found myself in great need of some repentance and forgiveness and grace. Older women, older women likewise, verses 3 and 4, that they may be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may admonish the younger women. Reverent behavior includes internal and external and has reference to your holiness or the fact that you've been set apart in Christ. 1 Timothy 2, 9 through 10, the women should adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly things, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. I'm going to remind you here. I'm going to remind the men and the women of what we said last week. The thing that we're going to settle on the front end that starts in the book of Titus is Jesus is the boss of me. God's truth is the boss of me. And I'm not going to let the world tell me that I need to be ashamed of what the Bible says. Not in the least. So I'm not going to make any apologies for what the Bible says. Now, are there plenty of people who misunderstand the Bible? Absolutely. We need to correct that. But I'm going to start with this. I believe whatever God's Word says, and I'm going to think whatever it thinks. And if that means I've got to change my mind, then I'll change my mind. So if you're over 40, then you're an older woman. Sorry. Reverent behavior includes, again, internal and external. If you are more concerned about how you look than, how, than about uh, your heart and your attitude, I'm glad you're concerned about how you look. But if you're more concerned about that than you are your heart and your attitude, then you're missing the point. Of course, you couldn't possibly admonish younger women to do what you yourself are not already doing. So you must be a godly woman if you're to fulfill this command of Scripture. This text doesn't say some older women are to engage in the instruction of younger women. So please don't hide behind some false humility. Oh, I don't really have anything to teach. Well, shame on you if you have nothing to teach. Shame on you. Ungodly, selfish, and self-righteous women cannot and will not engage in this work. And I'd like to suggest if you are an older woman and you're not engaged in, in this work, that's why. They don't want to because they are self-absorbed. And so I must say that I am really encouraged to see our younger women taking the initiative to gather and learn. 
to see them reach out to the older women and ask for their participation and help. And I want to thank both the older and the younger women who have taken the Word of God seriously and made this a priority. Like Paul, I know I now admonish the older women to step up and embrace your calling in Christ to serve his church and to help equip the saints for service. Younger women. Older women need to admonish younger women to love their husbands, to love their children. Verse 4. This is because real love is harder than we first think. I often like to ask young people, how much of a marriage is romance? And it's a trick question because like many things in life, uh, you don't have to be married for too long before you realize there's a lot more to it than you thought. Most marriages and households look a lot more like uh, a business or a city than they do a romance novel. There are always some tears involved. But in one sense, romance must be underneath all of it all the time. Love must be underneath everything. This is why older, godly women who have learned how to love their husbands the way God says to love them must, from time to time, admonish women, younger women to love their husbands because husbands can be very hard to love sometimes. Maybe often. Of course, marriage is a sexual relationship in the context of a covenant, and so part of that love is necessarily sexual, and part of it is seen in loving sacrifice and service. Neither of these are contingent. God requires this kind of love, even when it's hard. Now, of course, the obligation to love, uh, uh, the obligation of love is for men and for women, but the Bible and I think that's what's happening in this text, emphasizes particular duties for every group of people where the Holy Spirit thinks it is needed the most. So 1 Corinthians 7, 2-5. Remember, Paul writes Titus. He's also writing to the Corinthians. Let each man have his own wife, and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her. And likewise, also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And so it is not only appropriate but also necessary for older women to come alongside the younger women and help them navigate and sometimes to navigate sometimes difficult waters, the difficult waters of being a wife and being a mother. Loving a husband and and children is hard work, and at times it is absolutely overwhelming work. And so we are not born knowing how to do all these things. Some have had the advantage of a mature, godly mother to train them, but many have not. 
Older women are to admonish the younger women, verse 5, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their husbands. The Greek word for discreet means uh, uh, sound of mind, sane, and curbing one's desires and impulses. Self-controlled are temperate. Um, Sometimes I think younger people might be more prone to uh, fall apart. Pressures, life is difficult, stresses. They haven't been there before. These things are new, and they're not experienced. They don't have all the wisdom. And so to come along, sometimes just putting your arm around someone, giving them encouraged word, pray with them, help them, give them some instruction, show them. There's, there's ways to lift up the weak and help. And there's no shame in being helped. And so the word chaste means pure and modest. Some of the younger women might need a godly older woman to help her know how to dress like a godly lady. I know we live in a culture where you're not supposed to ever mention what anybody else is wearing. That's none of, I can wear what I want to wear, and you can't say anything about it. That's not true. We're Christians. The Bible tells us to address this issue. It specifically tells older women to address this issue. So what happens here, uh, to learn, you need to, ladies, you need to teach younger ladies the difference between, between being frumpy and feminine. Learn what, uh, to learn that we must be set apart from our culture, which often dresses, frankly, like prostitutes. We have a world full of mothers who, uh, who want their daughters to be sexy instead of lovely, and perhaps that's vicarious living on their part. And we have a bunch of those older women who wish they could do the same. Nate Wilson has a great term for this, Dale Donuts. The word, which is translated good, encompasses a great deal, referring to a good attitude or nature. Useful, pleasant, agreeable, joyful, happy, excellent, distinguished, upright, Honorable. Proverbs 21.9, better to dwell in a corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a contentious woman. Proverbs 21.19, same chapter, better to dwell in the wilderness than with a contentious and angry woman. Now the word for homemaker means that you think, it means what you think it means. You take care of your home and manage its affairs. You're in charge of this domain. You have dominion here. And once again, older women, you can help by admonishing the younger women in this important work. And when I say important work, that is a gross understatement. Now remember, as we, again, saw from last week, chapter 1, we are not embarrassed about anything God says because he cannot lie, and we acknowledge his truth accords with godliness. Yes, older women must teach younger women to be, uh uh-oh, obedient or submissive to their husbands. Uh, I I go out of my way in wedding ceremonies to not shy away from saying that. And I can tell you I've had more than one reaction uh, after the wedding, uh, complaints, questions, whatever. Uh, Women who are not submissive to their husbands are disobedient to God. That's what it says. 
I know there is much misunderstanding of what the Scripture is teaching here, but the problem is not with what the Scriptures are teaching. The problem is with the misunderstanding. But right now, I am speaking to the plain rule and not the legitimate exceptions. So I think I'll let the Apostle Peter unpack the Apostle Paul's instruction for women to be obedient or submissive to their own husbands. 1 Peter 3, 1-6. Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they're unbelievers, they, without a word, may be won by the conduct of their wives. When they observe your chaste conduct, accompanied by fear or respect, do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this, in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. And if you want to know why this is so important, Paul concludes this section in Titus in verse 6 by saying, so that the word of God may not be blasphemed. As wives, you represent the bride of Christ, and everyone should be able to see you and immediately see that he has a lovely wife. Young men, likewise exhort the young men to be sober-minded, verse 6. To be sober-minded means to exercise self-control of your thoughts and of your passions and of your body, to have a moderate estimate of yourself, and to curb your passions. In other words, the goal is for you to act like a mature, godly, older man and not an arrogant, self-absorbed boy. That's the goal. That's hard. You know why? Because you're naturally a self-absorbed, arrogant boy. Young men are prone to think way too highly of themselves, which is usually just their means of hiding their insecurities with either bluster or silliness. You've seen young men who make a joke of everything because they are rarely sober-minded. Older men and fathers, you're to recognize this in younger men, and it is your job to admonish them to maturity. And you can interpret admonish in a range of things. Uh, verbally, a thump, or other forms of getting their attention. But it's important that you not let that go unchecked. We live in a world of self-indulgent baby boys who would rather play games than do hard work. It is no wonder that our culture is going to hell. Paul now enumerates the virtues of what genuine Christian young men look like. First, they show themselves to be a pattern of good works. In other words, they have the reputation for good works. These young men don't have to be asked to help because they're eager to help. And they don't just help occasionally. They have the reputation or the pattern 
of helping all the time. Here at church, at home. Young men, if your mama is still having to clean up your room, stop it. Grow up. Be a man. Start getting ready for a wife so she'll, you'll make it easy for her to love you. Young men should use their strength in the service of others. They are examples to the little boys who are watching them. So first, show yourselves to be a pattern of good works. Second, verse 7, in doctrine they show integrity, reverence, and incorruptibility. Young men, I want you to think about these three words and evaluate yourself. Integrity, reverence, and incorruptibility. Someday you are probably going to ask some young woman to marry you and follow you and submit to you. And if you don't have integrity, reverence, and incorruptibility, then I will counsel her not just to say no, but no way. In fact, I'll tell her to run for her life. And I hope her parents and friends will give her the same counsel. Are you a man who is honest when no one is looking? Do you show genuine respect to your parents and for authority and for those who are weak? Are you one who, are, who is easily corrupted by others? You do pretty good at church. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Praise the Lord. But when you're hanging out with the guys and they're being nasty and boys are always up to something nasty, what do you do? You give in? Chime in, you participate, you laugh. Are you easily corrupted by others? Or or are you the one that can walk away when foolishness and sinfulness is presenting itself? Not in an arrogant, self-righteous kind of way, but you can do that in humility. How much Christian doctrine do you know? And if you don't know much, what are you doing to remedy that? When's the last time you read a good book on doctrine? What are you, what are you planning on having, uh, excuse me, are you planning on having children someday? And if so, what are you going to teach them? Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 9 tells every godly man this, and these are the words God says that I command you today and they shall be in your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your children and and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. In other words, the word of God should dominate your thinking and your life and your work so that you can talk about it wherever you are. Third, young men must have, verse 8, sound speech that cannot be condemned. So I ask you, young man, what is your speech like? What comes out of your mouth? Do you have a rule, which is God's rule, that zero, zero unclean words come out of your mouth? If not, then I, I, like the Apostle Paul, call on you to repent and turn from your such wickedness and honor God with your heart and with your words. Your crude and filthy speech is one of the fastest ways to undermine your Christian testimony. 
On the other hand, our text tells us that when you have the reputation for sound or godly speech, then those, according to verse 8, who oppose the Christian faith may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say about you. He's a good guy. He's a Christian. He's different. How do you know? I can tell by what he doesn't say. The Apostle John wrote, I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. And I want to say to you, young men, that's what I want to be able to say about every one of you. Quickly here, bond servants, exhort bond servants to be obedient to their masters. Verse 9, the last category of people that Paul addresses is here so that there will likely, and he does so, so that there will be a healthy church and a community. And while this is primarily addressing those who were actually slaves, these same principles apply to anyone who is an employee. As a Christian, as a member of the body of Christ, you always represent him. Therefore, you should be the best worker possible in both attitude and performance. Again, Paul enumerates, to be well-pleasing in all things, not talking back, not answering back, verse 9, not pilfering or stealing, but showing all good fidelity, that is, honesty. A person can pilfer time or money or service or product. Don't be a thief. Work hard. Why? Verse 10, same theme. So that, the, so that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. Now, quickly, a few minutes, really important, last section of this chapter. Going to tie it together. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust. We should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. So in this case, we go from duty to doctrine. Paul, his, Paul's usual method is to begin his letters with doctrine and then uh, end with a therefore, and then he goes into the practical application of that doctrine. Here, however, it's reversed, and he starts with the duties, and then he says because, and he lays down their doctrinal foundation. Either way, there is always an unbreakable link between doctrine and practice. Now, there are two foundational doctrines that should affect older men, older women, younger women, and younger men, and bond servants. And in this text, he refers to them as two epiphanies, or that's the Greek word here, or appearings. Verse 11 says that the grace of God has appeared. And verse 13 says that we wait for the appearing or the epiphany. Both of Christ's appearings have saving significance. What has already appeared is the grace of God that brings salvation, verse 11, while what we are waiting for is the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior in verse 13. So let's look at those two epiphanies very quickly. The first epiphany of grace. Jesus himself, according to John 1, was full of grace. 
This grace appeared to all men in the sense that it is now publicly offered to all. Author Canaan uh, Atkin wrote, Grace not only saves but undertakes our training. So all Christians become learners in the school of grace. So what then does grace teach? First, and negatively, it teaches us to say no to ungodly and worldly passions. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to be like that. Second, and positively, it teaches us to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age, in this culture. This is the one God had you and I born in. He put us here to be salt and light in this dying, decaying culture. Thus, grace disciplines us to renounce our old life and to live a new one. It is not only that grace makes good works possible, that is, enabling us to do them, but rather grace makes them necessary and challenging us to live accordingly. So the first epiphany is the epiphany of grace, what God has already done for us in Jesus Christ in saving us. And second is the epiphany of glory. Jesus appeared briefly on the stage of history. He has ascended and he will one day reappear. He appeared in grace. He will reappear in glory. And in fact, this future epiphany of glory is the supreme object of our Christian hope. It's what's set before us. The full title of Jesus is spelled out as our great God and Savior. Mega Theos. The great God. This is perhaps the most unambiguous declaration in the New Testament of the deity of Jesus. One day the veil will be lifted and his glory will make an epiphany. And according to 1 John 3, 2, when that happens, when we see him, we we shall be just as he is. So Paul returns naturally to this first epiphany when our salvation was begun. He gave himself for us on the cross. Why? Verse 14, not just to secure our forgiveness, but also that he might redeem us, buy us out of slavery from every lawless deed, and that is sin, and purify for himself his own special people, zealous of good works. That's why you were saved. You weren't saved to go to heaven. You were saved to belong to him. You were saved to be purified, to be made like him, to be changed, transformed. John Stott comments, Paul deliberately, this is interesting, chooses Old Testament words and images from the beginnings of Israel as a nation so as to describe Christ's salvation as the fulfillment of those foreshadowings. Thus gave himself for us, that is, sacrificed himself for us, recalls the Passover sacrifice, to redeem us, the Exodus redemption from Egyptian bondage, and a people that are his very own, the the uh, Sinaitic covenant by which Israel became Yahweh's treasured possession. Thus Paul uses the very expression, uh, uh, los uh, periosos, chosen people, which the Septuagint uses. Thus we enjoy a direct continuity with the Old Testament people of God, for we are his redeemed people, and he is our Passover, our exodus, and our Sinai. Paul's point is that as the special people of God whom Christ died to purchase for himself, he describes us as zealous. I wonder if that describes you. 
in your Christian walk? Are you zealous? Are you enthusiastic? Are you eager to do what is good so that we may live for him who died for us? Some of you, I fear, are failing in major ways in these things. And I simply admonish you today, right now, to repent, to stop, to change. Now. Not tonight, not later this afternoon, right this minute, to determine, Lord, I'm sick of living the way I'm living, and I know it's not right, and I'm not doing these things, and I want to. I don't know how. I'm afraid. I need help. But right now, I need forgiveness. Most of you have room for growth, probably all of you, and improvement in these things. And I admonish you with these words from Paul, Philippians 3, 12 through 14. Paul says this of himself. He's been an apostle for a while. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected. And by the way, perfected in the Bible can be translated mature. Not that I am fully mature. But I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself as having apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This chapter ends as it began with a command to teach. So he says to Titus, he wants him to instruct the Cretan uh, churches in both doctrine and practical living. And so Paul goes on to encourage Titus, last verse, speak these things. He wants other elders to speak these things. I just spoke these things. Exhort. I have exhorted you. And rebuke. I have rebuked you. And he says to do it with all authority. I have not apologized. And then he says to Titus, And don't let anyone despise you for doing so. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your powerful word that speaks directly to us. And it does so not only we know because it's true, but it's given to us because you love us. And you want us to have the truth. And you sent your son to die for us, to purchase us, to possess us, so that we could be a people zealous, enthusiastic about living for you. Good works as older men and older women and younger women and younger men and bondservants. Lord, help us to grasp this, to take it to heart and to to move forward and to press forward to attain it. We pray your blessings in Jesus' name. Amen. Just before we come to the table, I want to read one more time Titus 2, 11 through 14. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed, 
and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. In these four verses, Paul brings together the two bookends of the Christian era, which are the first coming of Christ, which was launched, uh, uh, which launched it, and the second coming of Christ, which will end it. He calls us to look back to the one and look forward to the other, for we live in between times, the already, not yet. But Paul is summoning Titus and through him us to do and to live. Older men to be dignified and mature, older women reverent and teachers of the young, younger women to be good wives and mothers, young men are to control themselves, bond servants are to be conscientious and honest. All of us are to renounce evil and live godly, righteous, and disciplined lives in this present age. Why? On what does Paul base his appeal? What are the grounds of present Christian behavior? Paul's reply is straightforward, namely that in Jesus Christ there has been an epiphany of God's grace and there is going to be an epiphany of his glory. And we need both to look back and remember the epiphany of grace, whose purpose was to redeem us from all evil and to purify for God a people of his own, people zealous for good works, and also to look forward and anticipate the epiphany of glory, whose purpose will be to perfect uh, at his second coming the salvation that he began at his first. We need to say to ourselves regularly, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. For then, our present duties in the home and in the world will be inspired by the past and the future epiphanies of Christ. Let us come to the table and celebrate these truths. Father, indeed, we are a blessed people. Give us grateful hearts. Help us refrain from being complainers and whiners and poor me. Help us, Lord, to look apart from ourselves and to look to our Savior who gave everything, everything for us so that we might live. We might live an abundant life, not in material things, but in deeper things, in unseen things, in the things that will indeed last forever eternal things. Lord, bless now your people as we go forth to live. Bless our homes, our marriages, our children, and all of our ministry to the world. Help us to be indeed salt and light. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at his coming, at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, he who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. Amen.